0: Find out more by going to www.intelligencequared.com forward slash partnerships. Hello,
1: podcast listeners. I'm Connor and welcome to this week's episode of Intelligence Squared. Today we're joined by Tim Harford the undercover economist, as he will be known to any Financial Times readers, to talk about his new book, How to Make the World Add Up, 10 Rules for Thinking Differently About Numbers. And in conversation with David Spiegelhalter, the acclaimed statistician and mathematician Hannah Fry, they discuss how we can make sense of all the numbers flying around our world from COVID-19 R rates and graphs on infection and excess deaths right through to economic metrics like GDP and the 1%. It's a fascinating conversation and if you do enjoy it you can find a link for Tim's book in the podcast description. A quick reminder that this was part of a live event which took place in September 2020 so if you do hear them talking about COVID-19 things may have moved on since it was recorded and now let's go to the episode.
2: Thank you very much. And uh, it is my pleasure to introduce our two, two other number gurus, if the uh, introduction needs to go by, um, for this evening. So uh, we have Tim Harford, man who hardly needs an introduction, but he is a senior economist for the Financial Times, where as the undercover economist, he reveals the economic ideas behind everyday experiences. Uh, he also presents the BBC radio series More or Less, which uh, I don't know about you, but was certainly my go-to source of information during the pandemic and still remains so. Basically required listening for anyone trying to understand how numbers and statistics are used in politics and everyday life. Uh, His new book, is called How to Make the World Add Up 10 Rules for Thinking Differently About Numbers. We also have with us the uh, leading statistician, Professor Sir David Spiegelhalter. He is the chair of the Winton Centre for Risk and Evidence Communication in the Statistical Laboratory at the University of Cambridge. Just rolls off the tongue there, David, doesn't it? Even before the pandemic, David was a regular voice in the media. But uh, since March, he has been almost continuously on our airwaves uh, explaining how we can make sense of the mass of confusing data about COVID-19 uh, and frankly achieving national treasure status in the process. Uh, his most recent book is The Art of Statistics and you can tell how much I like it because I've lost the cover and uh, have covered it in uh, in all sorts of scribbles so well-thumbed that one. Okay Tim let's start with you. I want to know why did you decide to write this extremely timey and prescient
3: book? <laughs> well I I've been presenting more or less for about 13 years and I've written a whole bunch of books, but I was resisting the idea of writing a book about statistics, about numbers, because I I just wasn't sure that I had anything to add. There are lots of good books out there, uh, including Sir David's wonderful book, The Art of Statistics. And um, I just thought, well, I can't be be just going over that ground again. And then the experience of fact-checking, these general election campaigns, Trump's election campaign, the Brexit referendum, Scottish independence referendum, made me realize, you know what? Um, People are not actually making decisions based on technical details about statistics. Uh, They may be making mistakes, but they're not making mistakes because they understand some fine statistical point. They're making mistakes because of their emotions, their feelings, their political identity. And if I want to write a book about how to think clearly, Yes, it's got to have lots of stuff about numbers, but it's also got to address uh, all of these other things that influence the way we think. And that, that was the point where I realised that there really was a book that not only did I want to write, but I could actually get really excited about writing. And I hope some people might get excited about reading. So
2: do you think that generally people have a, a, a good understanding of numbers or do you think that you know, there are real gaps in people, people's understanding? Well,
3: statistics has got all kinds of pitfalls and traps, But so often, uh, the the problem is that people are not stopping to think, even for a moment. So, for example, one of the things I'd mentioned just in passing in the book is a a graphic in the Independent newspaper when that was still a thing, talking about the wealth of the one percent, and they'd got they were also reporting on this fact that went around about how much wealth the richest 85 billionaires have, and there was this, the richest 85 billionaires, maybe they got more money than half the world's population, it all got m- mixed up. And this graphic talked about the, the, these 85 billionaires, the 1%. And I realised, okay, I, I, you don't need a lot of maths to know that the that 1% of the population of the world is not 85 people. But they were just rushing to be outraged about this fact that they, they couldn't do even the most basic maths. And so that's very often what's going on. Sure, there's technical stuff. There are really subtle ways of, in which you can make mistakes. But a lot of this stuff is, is in fact, not that subtle. And anybody can get it right if they, if they really try. What do you think, David? What do you think of the sort of general standard
4: yeah, no, I'd love to butt in there because I I, I would love to have re- written this book, but I couldn't have because I'm so concerned and obsessed about the, you know the details of the new manipulations and what can go wrong with with the much more sort of technical aspects of stats, and that's what I that's what I know about, and that's why I really admire this focus on on our feelings, how we respond to the, the numbers, because actually in all the work I've done, say with more or less or whatever, it it, it's, it doesn't depend on great you know, mathematical ability or any great, even great statistical insights. It's, it's just, you know, a lot of it, as you say in your book, in the chapter about, <laughs> I love this premature enumeration. Um, a lot of it's just, you don't do anything. You just like what does this number actually mean? What does it represent? Does it represent the thing we're thinking it represents? And time and again, or more or less, that's what's come up, is that the number that's been quoted isn't actually what people think it is. And we've seen it, we'll come on to the COVID thing later. We see that all the time in COVID as well so what I want to ask though Tim come on how did you choose the structure for this book how did you choose these 10 points did you start off with 50 and narrow them down and blend them and things like that because you know I've we, we've all written these damn books and tried desperately to think of the structure I don't know about you I moved chapters around all over the place and I, I was wonder, how did you do it come on so, oh no
3: so that escalated quickly didn't it uh, so, <laughs> what? It was originally supposed to be divided into two halves. So one half was about feelings and one half was about technical details. But in the end, I realized actually you wanted a mix of the two. And I, and I began and ended by getting people to, to reflect on their feelings. The, the opening chapter is, is all about the influence of our emotions and our political affiliation and so on on what we think. And actually begins with a story of the world's leading expert on Dutch art being fooled by a really crude nasty forgery and a and a horrible man as well was the was the forger and he fell for this this incredibly crude forgery because he really wanted it to be true he didn't lack technical expertise he had all the technical expertise so i begin the book with a with a story that actually doesn't have any numbers in it and at, at the end i talk about the importance of being willing to change your mind which is a terribly difficult thing to do i, I think probably all three of us have changed our minds about one thing or another during, uh, during the last few months. But it's not easy to do. And it's especially not easy to do when you've got nasty people poking at you and trying to embarrass you about stuff. And that makes it even harder.
2: Do you think that happens a lot then, that uh, politicians, I guess, make the deci- or look for the evidence to support the decision they want to make rather than the other way
3: around? I think it's very clear that uh, for a politician, uh, a number is a weapon, a statistic is a weapon. I have a whole chapter about the, the use of official statistics and how brave some of the statisticians are and how much aggravation they get from the politicians who are not, because they're not producing the numbers that the politicians want. So, yeah, I mean, for a politician, of course, um, I, I would hope in government they're using the numbers to make wise decisions. But, you know, we know politics is about winning arguments and about looking good and about proving that the other guys are wrong. So we can't be surprised that that's how politicians see numbers the trouble is that if the rest of us also see numbers like that then we're, we're getting sucked into their game and we, we don't need to do it like that we can we can use numbers to see the world more clearly not to win an argument
2: are you ever guilty of making the same mistake tim of uh jumping in when you see a number without necessarily
3: thinking it all through Oh, oh, for sure. I mean, um, n- normally I, I make different mistakes. I've made some interesting mistakes in the last couple of weeks, which you know we, we could talk about if you want. But I, certainly before I worked on the book, I used to m- I used to make the emotional mistake a lot. So I would see, for example, I saw a graph that was showing support for gay marriage increasing in the US, and I'm a, I'm a big supporter of. of anybody's right to marry anybody that they want, regardless of sexual orientation. I think it's super important. I was so enthused about this and I just retweeted it. Tens of thousands of people on Twitter saw me just retweeting this graph. And it was from the Washington Post, you know, I think it was a reasonable source. And the very first uh, reply was, Tim, have you looked at the axes on that graph? And I just thought, oh, no. And I looked and it was just a mess. It was kind of they were were compressed and expanded and the whole thing. I should have clipped it for my bad data visualization file. I want to show people how what not to do. But instead, not only had I had I sort of swallowed it, but I had I had broadcast it to the population of my hometown because I wanted it to be true and I liked it. And so, I think I make those mistakes less often, but you know there are a whole new ways to make mistakes, and I'm always stumbling one way or another.
2: I think that's the thing. these biases and prejudice they are unavoidable, aren't they david? I mean even Professor Sir David Boggehardt oh. i must i imagine makes makes them sometimes.
4: Oh, I'm, I'm awash (laughs) with biases. I, 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 I am a walking demonstration of every human frailty you can think of it. And, but as Tim's, you know, book identifies so strongly, it's not to say that you can't have these. We should somehow eliminate them. We just have to try to have some insight into them and pause and reflect on what we are feeling and what our automatic reactions are. And that's what I really like about it is that it's not, you know, we, it, it you know, relates to thinking fast and slow. It's not saying, oh, you have to think slowly. You have to engage system one or two. I can't remember which one it is, but, you know, you've got to do this analytic, cold analytic thinking because actually our feelings about things are terribly important. It's actually, I think, how we see that insight and get that some of that imagination and that's what i'd also i'd really like to ask you about tim is that you finish the book beautifully by an appeal for essentially more um Imaginative communication of statistics. Um, I, I use the phrase, it's no good being trustworthy if you're dull, is what, which I think is what, what, that sort of says, is that, you know, it's all very well being trustworthy and honest and up for, and, and upright and that's it. But if nobody's taking any notice of you and actually the stage is continually being held by people with outrageous claims that they can't back up, um, that's not great. And so I suppose that's what I'd like to ask you as a, as a, as, you know, you, you put this up forward, how can we do it better? How can the, <laughs> the good and the righteous um, actually have a bit more centre stage?
3: Yeah, I, I, I wish I knew. I've got some ideas. So, so Orson Wells, I quote Orson Wells in the book, who says, um, there's no problem getting an audience to understand complicated things. You just have to interest them. If they're interested, they can understand anything and I think that's the, that's the. mistake we sometimes make with with communication is to is to to dumb it down and to make it extremely loud and simple and you know whatever whatever it is hands face space what you know and and actually if you can make people want day, to, if you can make people want to know actually curious they'll they'll sit and they'll they'll follow a a complex explanation I mean Hannah's book has got these wonderful stories about. The the woman who discovered the buy the condoms again oh yeah sort <laughs> uh, in the in the in the basket of of Tesco's and she's like well I don't use condoms with my husband I wonder why the buy condoms again button has come up and and that was a great way of explaining uh, algorithmic errors or maybe the way we blame algorithms for things that are not in fact algorithmic errors and and David you've got this amazing story about how statisticians could have have caught the mass murderer Harold Shipman. If, if only they'd been able to. And in both cases, there's there's a quite a subtle point. But you know, you start with the with the woman finding the condoms in the in the basket, or you, well, this doctor who's, who is who is just a horrendous human being murdering his patients. And then we, you know, we'll we'll come for that, and then we'll stay for the for the statistics, for the technical explanation. And that, that's what I'm trying to get people to do. It's not just about sound bites and keeping it super simple. If it's interesting, people will will go further with you. I think.
4: How, how do you balance that? I, I, I think it's wonderful you've got a chapter on official statistics because that normally, which you call the bedrock, which normally doesn't get any attention whatsoever. It's being, you know, usually just seen as staggeringly dull. But, you know, we've seen during this crisis how absolutely vital they are. And yet they've also kept their communication really quite sober and controlled and, and reserved. You know, do you think that within official statistics, they should could be a slightly more little bit of sort of bite and imagination as to how they do their communication?
3: I mean, they've got a hard job, haven't they? Because they they never want to be accused of editorialising. And, and one of the things that I describe in the book is all of the ways in which these amazing and quite brave statisticians are being beaten up by politicians of all stripes in all kinds of countries and just threatened and, and sacked and you know threatened with prosecution threatened with death we I mean, just appalling things happening to these people so yeah you can see why they want to play it straight I do think when I look at communications that come out of the Office for National Statistics uh, I, I want a bit more context I want to see how it all fits together I want a bit more explanation a little bit more of a story that will help me understand I, I understand why they don't want to do that they want to leave that to well the likes of us three but maybe they could do better there I
2: do sort of worry a bit about the reverse of what you're saying there, Tim, that it is often the very sexy studies that make it to the news that everyone talks about. I'm thinking about power poses and plate sizes and maybe jam experiments, that kind of thing. And then actually, once you dig in a little bit deeper, um, they don't quite stand up to the great headline claims. Do you want to tell us a bit about the the jam experiment that you've got um, in your book?
3: Yeah. So the jam experiment, there's a couple of economists, uh, not economists, psychologists, Mark Lepper and Sheena Iyengar, did this really interesting experiment where they went to an upmarket uh, supermarket in California and they set up a stall offering samples of jam. And it was a randomised trial. So some days they had lots and lots of different types of jam and some days they just had a small selection. And they gave people vouchers so they could track who had come to the stall, got, tasted some jam, got a voucher, then gone and bought the jam. And what they found was, to everyone's surprise, uh, people were more likely to buy jam if there, was, there were fewer options. So this became known as the sort of the choice is bad or the choice demotivates paradigm. Very interesting, and it became the stuff of TED Talks and, uh, and best-selling books and it's super, you know. Now, for me as an economist, I'm like, okay, well, that's a bit surprising because supermarkets have a lot of choice. And so are they, are they really getting all this wrong? And then when you look a little bit more, you realise, they sold ten times as much jam. Ten times as much jam when they had six types of jam instead of 28 types of jam. You think, can that really be true? And then I was talking about this, and then somebody said, well, you need to talk to Benjamin Scheiberhenner. I thought, who's this guy? And Benjamin Scheiberhenner was this young psychologist who had tried to do this experiment because he wanted to explore different variables and go deeper, and he just couldn't get the numbers to, to come out. He couldn't repeat the effect and he started asking around, and he found there were dozens of psychologists who were trying to do this, and they couldn't get the effect uh, either. And it turns out that the, it was probably a statistical fluke. I mean, the, the respected psychologists, Leppert and Yengar, great psychologists, I'm sure they've done a, a good job, but they, you know, it just, they just got a fluky result. But it was the fluky result that became, not only was published, but became the stuff of TED Talks and NPR articles and best-selling books. And meanwhile, Benjamin Scheiberhenner couldn't get published because everyone was like, well, you're just replicating the, this, this thing that we already know, what's the interest in that? So there's a, there's a whole chapter about this new movement now in psychology and in the sciences more generally to try to be much more systematic about just checking and let's do the experiment again and again with a bigger sample size. And a lot, a lot of times we're finding that the, there's a really systematic filter, which I just call the interestingness filter, a lot of stuff you see is maybe not the stuff you should be believing.
2: I remember uh, Sarah Jane Blakemore <laughs> once said that uh, how to know whether you should be sceptical of a, of a psychology study is whether or not it's got a TED talk. It's got a TED talk, raise an eyebrow. But this is yeah. I mean, this is yeah. a genuine problem, yeah. David. Right. This is like a substantial problem in the field.
4: I, I, I that's why I'm very glad that Tim included this, because this has been a, a huge influence, in, not just in psychology and social sciences, about the lack of reproducibility of their science, but in everything else as well, and led to a big movement in terms of pre-registration of studies and so on. So um, it, I, I, it's wonderful to have this. Actually, brought much more to the public attention. I still believed in that choice thing. I didn't know that it had been debunked, in it, essentially. So, I mean, I uh, my little comment I make about this is I've got what I call the Groucho principle after Groucho Marx, who said he'd never be a member of a club that would have him as a member. And uh, my thing is uh, that the fact it's a bit like TED talk. The fact that something isn't a TED talk is reason to disbelieve yeah,
3: it. I mean, I, this is very harsh, but although, Hannah and I have, have both given several TED talks. I have to point out. oh sure, well, there.
4: yeah, no, I haven't. I haven't <laughs> (laughs) I haven't been invited to give a big
2: TED talk, so I've obviously got. We weren't announcing big results, though. It's fine. We're okay. We're okay.
1: (laughs) The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared. And to create each one, we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent. But behind the scenes, there's also a producer, a production team, and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super, super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see. No hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now, by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-the-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before. Bring the arts home with Marquee TV. Hello, podcast listeners. A quick note before we go to this section. This was recorded in September 2020, so things may have moved on in terms of COVID-19 and the pandemic in the intervening months. We hope you're enjoying the episode, and now let's get back to the podcast. So
3: look, I've got a a personal example of the the Groucho principle uh, that I think is very instructive. So as I know David knows all about this. So about three weeks ago, I wrote a piece for the Financial Times trying to help a friend of mine think through his risk of getting a fatal case of COVID. So he's 62. He lives in London. He doesn't want to go outside his front door because he thinks of himself as being a high-risk person. And there's the viruses out there. So he's staying at home until I do the maths for him. So I, I took on this challenge and I figured out that at the time it was probably about a a one in two million chance every day that he kind of behaved like the rest of the population, about a one in two million chance that he got a fatal case of COVID. It's probably more now because there's more virus than there was when I did the sums. But then I thought, well, that's not really very informative. I need to make a comparison. So I I went to a list that David Spiegelhalter had made of of small risks, and it was horse riding, uh, riding a motorbike, going skiing. And they're all about one in a million, one in two million, one in three million. They're all in the same ballpark. And then I made a mistake, which was to go to another website where a different epidemiologist had had added to the list. And and he said, or taking a bath. So So I just, as an afterthought, I was so careful about the COVID risk. But as an afterthought, I was like, this is about the same risk as riding a motorbike, riding a horse, going skiing, or taking a bath. Okay, fine. That's a mistake. The bath thing is wrong. But the FT then put it in the subheading. Because they thought, well, that's really, that's the most interesting thing in the piece, to be honest, Tim. (laughs) Like, 98% of the piece is right, but not very interesting. True, but dull. But the bath thing, that's interesting. Then, a couple of days later, I get a sort of a press alert, and the sun has written it up. As a headline. Expert says COVID is as dangerous as taking a bath. Then the mirror, like, expert gives interview to the sun. Not true. Say, and I, I, there's a certain point at which I thought, I need to check, because I never... You know, it was just a little afterthought. And I got it wrong. And the true, basically the true number is, it's the risk of taking a bath for a year. It's the risk of dying in the bath over, over a year. So I, I got that wrong and I feel really bad and I apologise. Nobody, nobody caught it, by the way. I was the only person who noticed I got it wrong. But I, what I find really striking, when we're talking about this, the Groucho principle, the, the things that you should, you should doubt, nothing I've ever said in my entire life has ever been a headline in the sun, until I said something that was wrong. And then it was interesting enough to be in the sun, so um, beware, beware. That's very true indeed, very true indeed.
2: You've, you've given us quite a good corner turn there, Tim, actually, because I wanted to bring on, us onto um, some more of the COVID stuff. And in particular, the fact that, you know, these mistakes of intuition are mistakes that all of us are making all of the time and all the way through COVID too. And I just wanted to get your take, uh, given the extensive coverage that you've, you've given all of us during the whole pandemic. What are the key mistakes of intuition that you've seen uh, along the way?
3: The most obvious mistake is that we really struggle to get our head around exponential growth. And I, I, do, I worry that we may be making the same mistake again, but hopefully not. Exponential growth is not actually very hard to understand conceptually, but it's really, really hard to, to just get your head around emotionally. And I think it explains why the government was very hesitant to lock down early. There was some other question marks over what they were doing, but I think it was just partly... It, it just didn't seem that it was imminent. Like very few people were dying. There weren't that many cases. It couldn't be. It couldn't be that bad. And then, of course, exponential growth will just take you to to a disaster very, very fast. So that, that I think is the the most obvious. I mean, there are lots of others, but um, that's the one that sticks with me. How about you, David?
4: Yeah, it's interesting. I was going to say. I was also going to say exponential growth, but in a completely different context. The fact that the um, it's been known for a long time that the risk of dying from COVID uh, doubles about every six years that you're older. And, and that's a, you know, as I've said, it's a horrible form of compound interest. It's multiplying up by 13% extra for every year that you're older. And it's very difficult to get your head around the fact that a a 40 year old has got, you know, like 10 times the risk of a 20 year old, a 60 year old's got a hundred times, 80 year old's got a thousand times the risk. And that staggering gradient with age, people say, Oh, it's more risky for older people. But to grasp just how amazingly more risky it is, is extremely difficult to get your head around. Because it's, you know, it's multiple zeros. It's not just, a, you know, a, an extra number.
3: Yeah, absolutely. I, t- I, t- I told, sorry, um, my friend who's 62, one of the things I looked up was, well, what are the ages of the people who have died? And I think I'm right in saying that about 90% of all the people who've died are older than my friend. He's 62. He thinks of himself oh, as yeah. being in a high-risk group. and I was like, well, yeah, yes, yeah, yeah. but higher than me, but, oh, wow. but not necessarily high relative to most of the people who've died.
4: Yeah, unfortunately, you might have looked at the, the, the age of death of people in intensive care, which is around his age. But the average, but the median age of people dying is 84 for women and 81 for men.
2: Early on in the pandemic, David, you also uh, quite famously said that the daily press briefings were number theatre, which, which I enjoyed <laughs> at the time. Um, what, do you think, uh, what do you think could have been done differently about the communication of the stats? And what, I guess, crucially, given where we are right now, what would you like to see going forwards?
4: This is what I'd actually like to ask Tim as well, because a lot of his book is about uh, essentially, you know, politicians using statistics as weapons, as he, as he described. And uh, my comment about number theatre was the fact that there were lots of big numbers being thrown around, without any great consideration about, you know, whether they were true or whether they meant anything or whatever. So, um, and that's very irritating. And I, I, my idea at the, at the time was just that, please, can we have the people communicating the numbers? who know their weaknesses and know their strengths and that can actually talk about them in, in an informed way rather than just reading them off a script as here's another bi- here's another big number so that's the first thing because I actually do think that the official some of the official communications from Public Health England and Office of National Stat- Statistics are good as, as Tim said they can be a little bit too sober but there are some good stories there, and their communication, in terms of their press releases and their media appearances, I think has improved enormously. But I want, but I want to ask Tim this as well. Okay, given these, I thought they were. I just couldn't watch them in the end, the, the daily briefings because they were so awful. How do you? I mean, I don't know where Tim might feel the same, but how do you think it could it could have been done better? So I'm I'm passing the question on to you. Yeah, I mean, I,
3: do, I, I have to say I avoided watching those those briefings. I didn't find them informative at all. I mean, I feel. I have some sympathy that once you've got yourself sucked into this, so you so you do the theatre thing because this is a pandemic and people are dying, and you, you need this press conference to really get people to take it seriously. And once you've started doing that, it's kind of hard to back down from that. And once you've started saying people, this many people have died today, you can't really stop saying that either, even though the daily death count isn't very informative. The I mean I. Sheila Byrd, great statistician who both of you will know well, was really leading the charge to point out that because the, the deaths were reported with a delay, when we were really on the exponential phase of, of, the, of, of the pandemic, twice as many people might be dying than were actually being reported. So the numbers were completely useless. You just had to wait a week and, and see how it all shook out, but no one was willing to wait a week. So that was... I had and as Sheila to,
4: pointed out at the time... Yeah. Sorry, I just butt in there. As Sheila pointed out at the time, when the epidemic was declining, you'd be overstating the mortality rate because you're always talking about what was happening weeks ago. Absolutely.
3: Absolutely. So these, I think, were mistakes, but they're forgivable. What I found really infuriating was the way that the government, for example, would just repeatedly lie about how much testing it was doing. And I, I'm not allowed to say they lied on, on BBC, or I think I would be discouraged from saying that. I think we're allowed to say they were, they were, it was not true. And I mean, I, maybe they weren't lying. Maybe they were just, maybe, maybe Matt Hancock was just wrong about this day after day after day, despite the fact that people kept correcting him. Maybe he never got the memo. So, you know, if he's just stupid and ignorant, I apologize. But it seemed to me that this was deliberate deception. And, and, it, and it undermines public trust because they they had this issue where they needed to ramp up testing they didn't ramp up fast enough they have done very well really have done very well in expanding testing capacity and they deserve credit for that but they should just have been honest instead they would every time people put them under pressure for not doing enough testing they'd set some ridiculous target then they'd miss the target and then they'd come up with some excuse for how in fact they really hit it for example, "Oh we put some tests in the post" and even though they haven't arrived, let alone been actually conducted, let alone been posted back, let alone been processed, those tests all count. And you, put, you say, well, how can you possibly count those tests? Well, you know, once we've posted it, we've done all we can do as the government. So, it's, so, I mean, this is just dreadful. And you see it again, but now the testing system is under pressure again. Suddenly we're talking about 100 million tests and there's going to be a moonshot in January. This is not helpful. And it undermines the message I'm trying to get across in, in More or Less and in, in the book, undermines the idea that statistics actually can be helpful, really can educate us about what's going on. Every time a politician uses them for spin, it makes the job of honest statistical communication a little bit more difficult because people just get cynical.
2: I mean, I think there was a a point early on in the pandemic where there was very little else that we had but statistics to guide us forward. David, sorry, I jumped in.
4: Oh no I just wanted to say again Tim I, I so like the fact that in the book you talk about a number of times about Honora O'Neill and her sort of philosophical approach to trust I mean, she's just you know the the uh, someone you're you, the go-to person on trust and the the the, the comment you make about that um, you know every organization and government wants to be trusted uh, but the crucial thing is to demonstrate trustworthiness and uh, I, th- I I th- I think that This which is a term used throughout the book, and I, I think it's an extremely valuable perspective on statistics because it, did, it puts the duty on behalf of the person actually doing the communication. To ensure that they're, um, they're, you know, transparent and balanced and fair and, and so on. It's not just a matter of trying to get the audience to trust you.
3: Yeah, I mean, you, you like the. I, I mean, I suppose the government might say, well, look, there's there's statistics that we use to make decisions and get stuff done. I mean, Dominic Cummings has been talking about this and the need to have more statisticians and data wonks in, in government. And then there's the statistics that we use to win an argument. Well, that's, that's no good. That's like having a, a, a urinating end and a non-urinating end of a swimming pool. I mean, it, doesn't, it all sure just gets mixed up and, and you, know, you, you can't keep them separate, okay? So that's how I see it.
2: Nice. What a great analogy. Thanks for that, Tim. That's a lovely mental picture. Um, okay. I think that's a really important point. What do you think about the role of luck in how differently countries fared? David, over to you. Well,
3: you're you're the
2: I expert. Hang on a moment. Sit. Hannah
3: <laughs> is the expert on this. You're the. You're I'm the here as the chair. Stuff spreads I'm here networks. as the chair. No, yeah, no. But <laughs> so, Hannah, please explain to us the role of luck in how epidemics spread, because you know more than I certainly than I do, and probably more than David <laughs> does as well. Please.
2: Okay, so a couple of years ago, we ran a uh, a giant citizen science experiment where we simulated what would happen if an epidemic came to the UK, and actually. Part of it was for a big TV stunt, but but mostly the reason for that project was to, you had to download a smartphone app so you could like play along. And um, the, mostly the, the the reason for the whole experiment was that people were allowing us to track them for 24 hours so that we could get an understanding of where they went and uh how often people interacted with one another and that kind of thing, so that we would have good data for when uh, a pandemic finally arrived. And actually that data has ended up forming the basis of a lot of the papers that have been considered by SAGE. So in terms of luck, I think once it's here, I mean so I it's a tricky question to answer right because there are so many different factors that come into it and you know I guess when I when I ask you the question about luck I think I mean things like you know your position in the world stage I mean how how avoidable was it really that 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 Britain given that London's a, a big transport hub you know the population density all of those kind of things I guess that's really my question how much do you think those those factors played a role, David?
4: Yeah, well, when I um, I made a you program did. about luck and uh, you know, uh, talking to Angie Hobbs, a philosopher, and she told me this uh, this concept, this, this particular kind of luck, which is called constitutive luck, which is when applied to an individual, it's just who you are, you know, what you're born into. You know, which you've got absolutely no control. You know, the fact that I'm born into, you know, I'm an enormous privilege. It's just the time and place that I'm born into and the family I'm born into has given me enormous benefits. And what else can you call it except luck? Because there's certainly, you know, nothing that I did about it at all. And it's similar, I think, for a country. It's just where it finds itself. You know, we we is it unlucky that uh, we have vast numbers of people who go on half term holidays to warm either to ski in Italy or to go to Spain for a bit of warmth, um, same as Sweden does, by the way and who then catch a disease, and they all go back. And so the we, are we unlucky, the fact that it meant that the epidemic erupted over the, almost the whole country? Obviously, some areas more than others, but if you watch it bubbling up, it erupts over almost the whole country almost simultaneously, as opposed to Italy and Spain, where it's highly focused where it, where it occurred. Now, is that bad luck? It's actually just the way the country is and who we are.
2: Okay, here's some questions though. All right, I like this one. I think this is to both of you. So how do you deal with resistance to knowledge? So this person says they live in Brazil and no matter how much good information is available, a lot of people will consciously opt for bullshit. I slightly wonder whether they've got a fair assessment of what other people are doing, but I do think that their resist- resistance to knowledge is an important and interesting question.
4: Yeah, I mean, it's a big problem, and it's going to happen more when the vaccine comes along, and people say, oh, I'm not going to have the vaccine, and all sorts of other things. I'm a big fan of what my colleague Sander van der Linden has been investigating, which is called inoculation, or pre-bunking. I quite like this phrase, pre-bunking. And that's that you, you, you preempt the, the fake news. You tell people first. I think there should be campaigns starting now, you know, to tell people, do you know there's people going around saying that the vaccines contain a microchip and you know from Bill Gates? I mean, it's all a plan to take over the world. So be the people to tell everybody this. Do you know there's people saying this? And this is why, and actually it's wrong. So you inoculate people with a, with a little bit of the fake news. And then when they hear it, they're ready for it. And everyone loves to have a better understanding and to be able to call out stuff that's hitting at, at them now this isn't going to influence everybody but the evidence seems to work that, that this is an, a one strategy i think seems pretty good and it's one that i think hang on though i could
2: just see a sun headline that says professor sir david spiegelhalter chair of the winston institute for risk says that there are microchips in the vaccine that will track you <laughs> yeah it has to be
4: done carefully <laughs> um,
2: so have they tried this out then have they actually tried have they run studies on this
4: Yes, yeah. There's been randomized trials of different ways to tell people the information, and it, and the idea that it, it it's it's almost the opposite of this backfire effect. And and as Tim mentions in his book, the backfire effect is something that has not been shown, you know, to have good re- reproducibility. Backfire effect is if, oh, if you tell people something's fake news, it only makes them believe it more. And this is actually the antithesis that you not only tell them the fake news, you tell it before anybody else You've tells it. You to have quite to
2: a good them. imagination as well. They <laughs> right? in not their like all the possible. Yeah, I mean, five G towers. Have
4: thought that one up, huh? could we? <laughs> oh yeah, five G charge. No, I mean the point is that this—you don't wait to respond. As a, 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 you don't put, you don't allow it to put you on the back foot. You get in there first. <laughs> I, I, I want to
3: like be there it, for I the brainstorm them. of, uh, yeah. of uh, fake news.
4: <laughs> oh, every every loony idea, <laughs> Tim. What do you think?
3: think so, so, I'm sure that I'm sure that both of you are fans of, of Eminem movie Eight Mile. I think it's Eight Mile. Actually, has him demonstrating this brilliantly. Spoiler alert! So, right at the end, the final rap battle. He's going against um, this other guy who he knows he's going to just rip him apart. And the first half of his rap battle, he basically goes through everything he knows the other guy's going to say about him before then going on the attack. And the other guy's got nothing because oh. he's, he's inoculated oh. him. He he's, he's said it all in advance. Yeah. So your, your colleague, Professor van der Linden, should, um, <laughs> should check out Eminem.
4: <laughs>
3: so on the, on, the ge- on the sort of general subject of how do we get people to, to take evidence more seriously... I think we have to, to recognize that for most people, being right is actually not the most important thing, especially if it's being right about some political fact about the world or, or for example, climate change. I mean, what I personally believe about climate change won't change the climate, but it really will change what my friends think about me. And so people's views of something like climate change, they're just influenced by the need to, to fit into what your friends think. And you can... That's really, I think, the only way to explain what you see in the in the states where not only are Republicans and Democrats way apart on their evaluation of the risks of climate change, but the more educated they are, the further apart they are. I mean, that's that, she's, it must be that they are actively using their education and using their scientific knowledge to reach a conclusion that fits in with their tribal identity. So I think we've, we've got to recognise that it's incredibly toxic anything to be pulled into the political arena, it's very hard to get it out again once it's been polarised. But the, the only suggestion I have is, as, I, as I've mentioned before, trying to awaken people's sense of curiosity. So at least once once you get them wanting to, to know more because they're interested, because they're engaged by the surprise, you've at least got a chance.
2: I was thinking w- while you were saying that about the polarisation being signalling to people in your tribe rather than necessarily about the information itself. I was thinking a lot about recent months on Twitter um, and just how and there's a lot of that going on, let's be honest. Oh,
4: David, sorry. So I just want to say, again, just remembering from your book, Tim, the, the emphasis on surprise. I suppose it's and as you know, surprise is a means of, of storytelling to arouse people's curiosity, which again, you know, everyone wants to hear more when you know what they're hearing is is unusual and interesting. So again, I think it, it puts uh, you know some onus on on we as communicators in a sense to be surprising, just to be you know, but but not that taking a bath is is as bad as so not that surprising so humor
3: yeah, yeah not so surprising that you're actually just wrong um, but humor can work as well <laughs> yeah. so so I, I write it yeah. towards the end of the book about um, something that Stephen Colbert the American comedian did and he's he's amazing I, I mean I've, I've been on the Colbert report once and it's just he's so fast he's so funny in character as this right-wing blowhard. But there's actually been an academic study done of something he did where he he basically said, I'm going to to talk about campaign finance. But rather than sort of exploring the influence of money in politics and all of these different legal um, vehicles and ways you can hide money and Supreme Court rulings. And oh, it's just so confusing. Instead, he kept getting experts in. Because he was like, I want to run for president. I want to know, know how I can raise a load of money tax-free, spend it all however I want, have complete deniability. And, and, and because we were on this journey with him as this in character as this corrupt politician who wanted to, to get one over on the system, people were really drawn in. They understood a load of really technical detail and they retained much, much more from just watching Colbert make jokes about this than they ever would have done. Reading the New York Times. Yeah, I agree with
2: that. It's like Philomena Kunk, her, um, the TV series that she gets commissioned. There is virtually nobody else in the country that could get away with topics that boring <laughs> um, but she manages it because of um, the way that she delivers them okay uh, another question this is uh, from Wilf um, so I think it picks up on a few points that you've made already both of you but they asked do you agree that it's very important to try and assess the mindset of the person or organization offering the stats I'm thinking in terms of agenda I guess that's I mean if you accept that sort of bias-free data just doesn't exist then how do you yeah do you have to assess the mindset of the organization david
4: i think you do i think you my question you know i always ask is is why am i hearing this you know somebody has chosen to deliver this message someone has chosen to tell me this why are they doing it why am i hearing this and not hearing something else and it goes along with of course with the next question which is what am i not being told what am I not hearing? What's the gaps? And because that's one of the most difficult things of all to work out. What are you not being told? But I think it is absolutely right to uh, question the motivations of the people who are delivering that information. And crucially, you know, are they trying to, you know, genuinely inform you and improve your knowledge of the world and the decisions you are going to make, or are they just trying to persuade you, either to frighten you or reassure you? In other words, what emotions are they trying to create in you? So I think this follows very much with Tim's, you know, the way he starts the book.
3: So I, I agree, but I think there's a fine line because there is a danger that one goes too far towards basically being able to dismiss any, any evidence, any statement from anybody you don't like because you, you can dismiss their politics. We saw it really strongly, for example, in the, in the Brexit uh, referendum, where the Institute for Fiscal Studies, which has long been respected as an independent and very expert authority on the British economy, and in particular the British tax system, suddenly in the middle of the referendum campaign, people started saying, well, they get get funded from Brussels, which which I think is true because they're funded by the Economic and Social Research Council, and the Economic and Social Research Council gets some money from the European Union. But um, I don't think there was ever any sense that the, the ifs would have been influenced by money from brussels but that's what people said and i think that's what a lot of people believed so david is absolutely right but we, we need to take care because it's easy to take it too far and start being cynical and just dismissing everything on the grounds that you don't like the messenger
4: yes But You're absolutely right. And notice I didn't say, oh, therefore ignore it and don't read it. No, listen to it. I actually am making a big effort to read the stuff on Twitter and in blogs, uh, lockdown skeptics and so on. Stuff that I think I, you know, often don't agree with. But actually, sometimes there's some really good stuff in there. They've got a clear, absolutely clear line that they're pushing. That this is, oh, it's no worse than flu. This is all awful. There's all that Neil Ferguson's, the, you know, demonising um, Ferguson, etc., and um, but there's actually can be some very good stuff in there in in, in terms. Of, so I I, I think uh, it doesn't mean you don't listen or don't take any notice of what they're saying. It's that you realise where it's coming from and that there's very likely to be highly selected evidence.
2: Yeah, I think I agree with that. I, I, I like your point there, David, about reading the things that you don't agree with as well as the things that you do. That's something that um, in around about 2016, for <laughs> reasons, well, political reasons, it took a, made a real effort to do that and I think I was healthier for it. Um, okay, there's a couple of questions about education. So uh, one question talking about, do you worry that policymakers or, or that not enough policymakers have appropriate training and stats. And another similar question that says, maths education seems more important now than ever. Um, what would you like to change uh, at school in, in terms of maths education? So I guess those kind of lump together.
4: Okay, who goes first on this one? I'm happy to go for, to, it. for
3: Yeah, it. I've been giving some yeah. thought about this. So uh, as far as politics, uh, politicians are concerned, we need a diversity of opinion in politics. You know, that left-wing, right-wing, centrist, men and women different skin colours, but also cognitive diversity. You need people with different life experiences and you need people with different training. And I think that certainly includes people with technical degrees, mathematics, statistics, economics, uh, chemistry, biology, physics. And there's not much of that, there's a little bit. Uh, Mark Henderson wrote a book about a decade ago called The Geek Manifesto, where he pointed out that almost all politicians seem to be uh, classics graduates, English graduates, PPE graduates or, or lawyers and uh, hardly any with serious scientific training. And he wasn't saying they should all be chemists, like Margaret Thatcher was, but just some of them. You just need that range of views, I think, for a, for a healthy democracy. Well, I've got thoughts about schools as well, but um, David.
4: OK, so I, I, I would I would agree with that. I know it sounds like we're channeling Dominic Cummings to some extent, but I do think that, not as a politician, but, but civil servants as well, Need, there needs to be a broader diversity in background and training, in particular so they can critique the sort of claims that people are, people are making. When it comes to schools, yes, I'm really interested in this. In fact, I'm on a, you know, a panel at the Royal Society set up on maths futures. I, I don't like the maths. I'd rather call them mathematical sciences because, for me, the most important areas for development are statistics and data science. And that's not part of maths. It intersects with maths, but it covers so much more than that in, and, uh, in terms of IT and science, critical thinking. It covers the entire curriculum. But because of that, it's extremely difficult to fit into the curriculum because we in this country have got an enormously siloed, you know, vertically separated curriculum. And so if it's not part of maths, where's it going to go? And uh, I think this is one of the big challenges in education at the moment is where you put the, this importance for what we might call data literacy, which is both the ability to critique the claims based on data but also the ability to actually handle data and do things with, with data and uh, where, do, where does that go in the education system? Uh, I, you know I feel very strongly about it that this is a, a vital skill for the future age, along with normal literacy and uh, and, and you know it 's more than just numeracy as well, that, which is obviously incredibly vital, but it 's beyond that. So uh, think, And it's a I real think challenge, we, I
3: think you, you've got, which I haven't got an answer. But you've hit the nail on the head, though, David, because I think what we need is not to have loads of extra statistics in in maths class and do less engineering maths or you know less calculus. We, we need to be trying to integrate these into the other subjects, and that is hard, but it's also a massive opportunity. I mean, my, one of the heroes of my book, Florence Nightingale, uh, who, who, a great statistician, hung out with with people like uh, Charles Babbage and Adolphe Ketelet, she was out in the garden, age of nine, drawing graphs of flowers and, and snails and just making that part of her exploration of the world. And if we can get young children using statistical concepts in their other studies, I think that's—it's not easy, but that, that I think is the. Trick. I think
2: that's—I think that's true. I think there isn't a, actually a subject in school at the moment that that you couldn't apply that in some way or another that you couldn't apply that to. Uh, although in maths, get rid of circle theorems, make some space. Uh, no one needs those, right? Um, <laughs> okay, I think we've got time for one last question. Um, this one, actually, I, I'm curious about this one too. So someone has asked how you both consume news yourselves. I guess, David, you sort of hinted at this a little bit earlier, but um, go ahead.
4: I, I get a lot of my information from Twitter, from the people I follow. As I said, I follow people I disagree with as much as people I, uh, I agree with. And I follow a lot of links through that. I get, I, I you know, I listen to, you know, or get, um, read articles by Organisations such as Unheard, which I find is a very good source of information, and I, I'm a very, I look at you know BBC Online and a couple of newspapers online, and I guess that's it. I never, I never watch television news, I think ever, and I will listen to radio news, Radio Four.
3: Tim, how about you? I'm I'm a podcast fan, so I particularly recommend uh, Risky Talk with David Spiegelhalter and The Curious Cases of <laughs> Rutherford and Fry. Uh, wonderful <laughs> podcast. <version>. Uh, <laughs> but I try to consume more slow news. So I, I write for the Financial Times, so clearly I I look at the Financial Times every day. But generally, I I find I get more out of slower news sources like the Economist or the London Review of Books or the New Yorker where people have had more time to think things through. Uh, you tend to get more depth and better stories and more insight and more detail. And I'm still, I'm quite old school, I still read blogs. Now, I'm, I'm like partying like it's 2005, but there are some, some great blogs out there. People who are really looking at looking at subjects slightly sideways from what the, the main news media are. And if something interesting is happening, on the front pages. I'll find out about it from the blogs very, very quickly. But they, they may point to it in an interesting way. Um, and that's always, that's the way I like to do What things. blogs? Can you recommend us some blogs? So my very favourite is Marginal Revolution, which is run by two friends of mine who are economists. But they've had loads of epidemiology on. And a more recent one, there's one called, uh, I think it's called Bridging the Gap, by an economist called Joshua Gans, who's very, fa- he posts every day, he's very focused on, the pandemic is an information problem. So we don't know who's infected and who's not infected. And just trying to really zero in on that is a very interesting question. And that turns out, you know, you learn a lot when you look at the problem like that.
2: Well, I think that then brings us to seven o'clock and thus the end of this evening's proceedings. All that remains is for me to thank Tim Hofford and David spooker and to hand you back over to Hannah Kay to say good evening.
0: What are you doing right now?